Okay, hello everybody. So, I don't think there's any children's church this morning, because I don't think there are any children old enough to go. But if you'd like to go, I'm sure... Mm. Okay, well, Romans 9. So this will be... Um, so I won't be doing Romans for a while, as you heard from Mike. Not Mike, sorry, I mean Kev. Because we are doing something a little different. So um, we'll put Romans on hold after this for however long. So anyway, I'll just uh, start with prayer. So Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is um, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between the spirit and soul. And we pray, Father, today that you would give us ears to hear your word to us today. And we thank you and we praise you. Help me to preach what you want me to preach today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start at Romans 9 and end at Romans 9. So Romans 9, 1 through to the end. Okay. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish I, for I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whomever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he find fault still? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay 
from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it has, was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would, not, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So, it's Romans 9, and Romans 9 through 11 lays out the position of Israel in relation to Jesus, Israel in relation to the church, etc., etc. And Paul begins the very start of that part of his letter by expressing great um, sorrow for his brethren in the flesh, the Jews. And why does he express such sorrow? Well, basically, obviously, because he has great empathy for those who are of his flesh, those who are his fellow Jews. And he also expresses the fact that they are the ones to whom the promises were given. They are the oracles of God. They were meant to bring the word of God to the rest of the world. But obviously they didn't. They failed as a people. And so Paul then asks are the promises of God null and void because most Jews do not believe? And the answer to that question is, of course, no. So what are these promises of God to the Jews, to, the, to Israel? And basically, they concern, among a number of things, they basically boil down to that God promised that Abraham's descendants would be great, that they would be a great nation, that's the first, and that they were promised the land, the land of Israel. Now, there was conditions upon their inhabiting the land of Israel, conditions of obedience, and as we know, they were taken off into exile to Babylon, etc. But that was a promise about, a conditional promise about occupation of the land. The fact is that they were promised the land regardless of whether they occupied it or not. And we can see in the uh, establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 that that promise still stands. 
But Israel as a whole does not believe. The Jews as a people rejected Jesus, their Messiah. And so we cast our mind back to the cross where the Jews at the cross said, his blood be on our head and on our children's head. And so when Pilate said, this man is innocent, I wash my hands of his blood, that is what the crowd said. Now some hold that that means the Jews are under a curse because they said, his blood be on our head and upon our children's head. And one might argue that this, in part, is why there is such vehement anti-Semitism in the world and that it's gone down through the ages, through the last 2,000 years. Pogroms, um, expulsions, people arguing, Christians arguing, or certain Christians arguing that Jews are the seed of the devil because they rejected Jesus and all those sorts of things. But there are two things you have to understand here in relation to that scene at the cross. And the first is that nowhere are we told in the New Testament that actually the Jews are under a curse, to my knowledge. I'm sure some people will be able to find some verse that alludes to it. But there is no verse that says the Jews are under a curse because they rejected Jesus, or at least not a specific curse upon them. And the second is, do those people who were at the cross actually represent the Jews? They were just people who happened to be Jewish. So if you, all you here, were to stand up and say, in relation to something, that person's blood be on our head and our children's head, that only relates to you. That doesn't relate to all New Zealanders or all Anglo-Saxons or all Maori or whatever. It relates to you personally, and I think that's what actually happened. I don't know what happened to those people who stood there at the cross and said those things. Nothing is said about them. They were just a crowd because they had been whipped up by the leaders. So when we say the Jews as a people rejected Jesus, effectively the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, rejected Jesus and ensured that the people rejected him too. And the reason they rejected Jesus was mainly political, really, because they wanted to keep him the good books of the Romans, they didn't want the people to rebel, etc. They totally misunderstood. Base, well, no, I don't know whether they totally misunderstood what Jesus was about. I think that they actually knew and were very afraid. So, Paul asks, again, are the promises of God null and void because the Jews rejected Jesus? And he says that not Israel... Not all Israel, rather, is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Now we come to the first controversy in, the, um, in this passage of Scripture. First major controversy. Now earlier in Romans, Romans 2, I think, Paul claimed that, not, that one is not a Jew outwardly, um, but inwardly, referring to circumcision that being a Jew outwardly is not the same as being a Jew inwardly, that circumcision of the heart is far more important than physical circumcision. And in a similarish vein, in Galatians 3, verse 26 to 29, you don't have to go there, Paul claims that all in Christ, Jew and Gentile, 
are heirs according to the promise and they are the seed of Abraham. So those who argue that national or ethnic Israel has no more place in God's scheme of things, that he has no more use for Israel as a nation, point to these verses, Romans 2, Romans 9, Galatians 3, 26 through to 29, to bolster their arguments. These are the verses that people who believe in replacement theology draw on when making their case. And there are, there are other verses. And they would say, yeah, there is, of course, salvation for individual Jews, naturally, because they are in the same boat as everybody else. But the promises of God belong to the church because the church has essentially replaced Israel. Or we might say that the church has fulfilled what Israel was meant to do, whichever way you look at it. And they base this interpretation of the scriptures on the fact that the best interpretation for the Old Testament comes from the New Testament. And of course, we know that um, the Old Testament is quoted a number of times throughout the uh, New Testament, and we, because we believe the New Testament is inspired of God, we can rest assured that that interpretation of the Old Testament that Paul brings and whomever else has quoted the Old Testament, that that is a correct interpretation of the Old Testament because it's inspired by God. But let's actually unpack what um, Paul was actually saying by the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, both in Romans 9 and also in Galatians 3, and also to, a, to an extent in Romans 2. What is Paul actually saying? Because he's not saying these things. He's not saying that being, um, he's not Sorry, he's not saying these things, that the Jews have been replaced. He's not saying that God has no more use for Israel or the Jews as a people. What he is saying is that being a Jew is not a free ticket to heaven. So if you look again at Galatians, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither free nor slave. There is neither male nor female. But we know for a fact that elsewhere in the New Testament, there most certainly is male and female. So when Paul says here that there is no male or female, he's not um, a forerunner of the transgender movement or anything like that. By any means, he's saying that men and women are in the same boat before God. They need Jesus as savior. And God does not dis make any distinction between a man or a woman in terms of the the fact that they're sinners. It doesn't matter that men may um, lean towards a particular kind of sin, more violent. It doesn't matter that women lean towards another kind of sin, whatever, because it's all sin. It doesn't matter. They're in the same boat and they have the same status before God. They are equal in the sight of God, but elsewhere we know that there are roles. And as... Um, Marie alluded to earlier, wives obey your husbands, husbands love your wives, etc. The fact that the wife has to obey her husband doesn't mean she is less than her husband. It is God's order of things. And doesn't mean that men are more intelligent than women. On average, they're not. It's probably quite equal. I've not tested it, but anyway. 
So, point, point being, men and women, same status before God. And it's the same with Jews and Gentiles. An individual Jew is no different before God than an individual Gentile. They are both guilty. They've both broken the law. So they both need salvation. That's what it means. And further, he is saying that those who believe, they are children of Abraham because he is the father of faith. That's why he's called Father Abraham. I don't know whether he's actually called that in, like, Father Abraham, you know the song, and I'm not going to sing it. Um, but um, So people who believe, they are the children of Abraham because he is the father of faith. They believe, and their belief is accredited to them as righteousness, as if they'd never sinned. And that's the whole theme of Romans. It's the whole context of Romans is that righteousness through faith, not through obedience. So we know that God also made a promise to Abraham for his physical descendants. And as I said before, that promise or promises concerns the land and that the Jews would be a blessed nation. And these have not been revoked. So if you look at the Jews today and over time, there's a disproportionate number of successful Jews, there's a disproportionate number of Nobel Prize winners and so on and so forth. One might argue that that is a result of them being blessed by God. At the same time, they're, as I said, they've been heavily persecuted over 2,000 years in a way that goes beyond anything that's rational. We know that uh, one group persecutes another group, etc. One race hates another race, tribe against tribe, etc., which is part of human nature, sadly. But the Jews, it seems that everyone piles onto the Jews, regardless of where you're coming from or what, what you are. Again, one might argue that's because they are the chosen race, or the cho well, yeah, chosen people of God. But as individual, individual people, they don't get a free ticket to heaven. So that is really what uh, Paul is saying. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Jews will be saved. And in fact, you are not saved by virtue of being a Jew. So Paul continues with the issue of God's justice and his righteousness. And he quotes what um, God said to Moses. God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will... Um, what did he say? I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. <clears throat> and for this reason, to show his power, God raised up Pharaoh. So in this regard, we can't question God's sovereignty. He's God, and he has the sovereign right to act as he will. But we do have to understand the context here. But before we do, people say, well, if he made Pharaoh hard, if he raises some people up to be one thing, if he uh, raises other people up to be another thing, to have mercy, but these people to not have mercy, who can resist his will? And Paul rebukes such a one, such a question, by not even entertaining it, simply by saying, who are you to question the sovereignty of God? He's not saying that that's actually what God does. 
He's not saying, yes, actually, God does raise some people up to be hard, and he makes them that way specifically for his purposes, and he makes other people open to his mercy because that's what he does. Paul doesn't say that. He says, actually, who are you to question God's sovereignty? The pot, the, the pot doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me thus? But Paul isn't actually saying that God specifically made Pharaoh hard. And let's actually see what the context here is so we can understand specifically about Pharaoh. So God didn't make Pharaoh hard to display his power. God used Pharaoh's hard heart that already existed. God did raise Pharaoh up for the purpose of the power that he displayed, but Pharaoh was already a hard man, as are most humans. <clears throat> and that hardness becomes particularly evident when you have power. If Pharaoh had just been a normal member of the public or whatever, he would have been completely different to what he was as Pharaoh. And they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But one might also say that power shows the corruption that was already there. So when Paul says that God endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, a Calvinistic thought, and I, I, I'm straying into another controversial area, this might be labelled the second controversial area, because this is an area that Calvinists use to um, support their arguments. But anyway, so I'm just putting it out there, so if you are Calvinistically inclined, well, that's fine. But anyway, Calvinistic thought holds that uh, the God who that God who prepares vessels for destruction. Hang on, Calvinistic. I can't read my notes here because I'm on such a controversial area. I'm getting all jittery. I can't read my notes. Oh, Calvinistic. Okay, so let, I'll I'll kind of paraphrase what I think I'm trying to say is that God is that Calvinists hold that God prepares vessels for destruction. He prepares a vessel for destruction specifically. But the correct translation, according to the um, commentary in my Bible, which I do trust, the correct translation has it that these vessels prepare themselves for destruction. Because of the way they are, the way they act, the way they resist God's will, the hardness of their hearts, they are effectively preparing themselves. God didn't take one person and make him hard so that he could I'm going to make you hard. You cannot ever be saved because I've made you this way. That is not actually the way I think it reads. The way it reads is that these individuals have prepared themselves for destruction. And that seems to be the recognized translation from the Greek in relation to its um, grammatical structure. So Pharaoh, along with multitudes of other humans over the ages, have prepared themselves for destruction. So these verses don't support a Calvinistic position in my view. And I, as I said, I acknowledge that some people may disagree with me and that's fine. Um, it doesn't support a Calvinistic view that says some, or really many, are prepared for destruction. And the fact that um, in the Calvinistic view, not being chosen for salvation or being passed over for salvation effectively means that you have been chosen for damnation. And I don't believe that this is the purpose of the text. 
and I don't believe it. And if you take that meaning, I believe that that's twisting what actually is being said and what Paul is getting at. What Paul is explaining here is that God is not unjust in any way. Israel does not automatically benefit from the inheritance of Abraham's, um, the aforementioned, uh, sorry, Israel does not automatically benefit from the inheritance of Abraham. That is to say, attainment of righteousness by faith, by virtue of being Jewish, and that this is not unjust in any way, shape, or form. So God's promises to Israel regarding the land, his promises to them about being a blessed nation, they still stand. But the context of this passage is that Christians have been justified and that those Christians who are justified um, cannot be separated from the love of God. That was what Paul was, had in mind. He had just said in chapter 8 at the end that those... Um, have a look at what he actually specifically said, that there was nothing that can separate a Christian from the love of God, nothing. And so he was, had that in mind, and then he went on to talk about the Jews in relation to that. And as we know, the central message of Romans overall, and including Romans 9, is righteousness by faith. And this is the point that Paul has made throughout the whole of Romans so far. So basically, when replacement theology people argue, what people who believe in replacement theology, they like to call their theology fulfillment theology, because I guess it sounds better than replacement theology. Fulfillment theology. And it's uh, what they're arguing, as I understand it, is that Jesus fulfilled the promises, or the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises God made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. And in one sense, that's not incorrect, because righteousness by faith could not have come about except by Jesus. If there was no sacrifice on the cross for our sins, there would be no righteousness through faith. Righteousness comes by faith. So in a sense, that promise is fulfilled through Jesus. But that does not include those promises elsewhere. And that does not in any way mean that Israel is finished as a nation. God still has plans for Israel. And um, those plans are coming under extreme Opposition, as you'll probably see from the news. I mean, there's an increasing number of terrorist attacks in Israel. It used to be that there were suicide bombers. They were quite popular at one stage in Israel. Not popular, but it was a popular means of attacking, attacking Jews and Israelis. Suicide bombing. Now it's individuals going around stabbing people or shooting them. So actually, it's interesting because you Suicide bombings were quite a bit more effective. Step on a bus, blow yourself up, kill everyone on the bus. That could be 30 or so people. Individually attacking people, you usually only get three or four. But whatever way it is, it's, it's an opposition from the devil, I believe. 
So um, chapters 10 and 11 go on to discuss this at length and show that the Gentiles, or rather those in the church, have been grafted in to the people of God. And Paul talks about the natural olive branches being the Jews temporarily cut off but being brought back in. But we won't be looking at that for a while because of our um, new... Um, what do I call it, new program. New program. I don't like to use the word program. So, if we'll finish there.